Let's pray. Okay, we're still in chapter 4. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we saw verses 10 through 7 through 10. I'm going to read that again, and we'll enter into this particular section. James writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. As we mentioned before, this section, James gives six exhortations or encouragements. Uh, I think rather strongly, especially the people that he understood the, that, uh, the needs that they had. Um, this first century epistle uh, was written, and these exhortations came out of the challenge of living a life by faith. And if there's one thing that I trust that we've tried to remember throughout from chapter 1 all the way through, is that was the theme that James brought out, living a life of faith. And how did it apply in, in everyday life? We said that when we met last, these first century believers were living pretty much like we do, meaning the surrounding folks were, uh, a majority of them were not believers. They were living in a pagan society, an anti-Christian mission field. Yet for the most part, they lived, again, without the luxury of having an actual pastor to lead them. And I think that's important for uh, Pilgrim, uh, recognizing that what James was presenting to them was powerful. Um, Obviously, we can have people fill the pulpit adequately and provide the Word of God, but it's really up to the Word of God itself as we use it and apply it in our own lives to make the choices right, to make decisions correctly, and to allow the Spirit of God to be our teacher in all things. How do we then become overcomers in the world? Uh, James is telling them, These six keys are important to become an overcomer. And for us, these are just as key. We looked at the first three already, and let me just briefly touch on them. I saw a little bit of number four, and then we'll finish out the rest. The first one out of verse seven is what? Submit yourselves to the pastor. No. Submit yourselves to God. And there is really no better understanding in life for the Christian to recognize that there is a submission relationship to God, always. No matter what station in life we are in, no matter what position or posture we find ourselves in, I have to be submissive to him. Whether it's here on earth or whether it's in heaven, that is the relationship that I have with my God. We are God's servants and we always will be. And we will spend the rest of our days here on this earth in a process of learning what that means. Daily breaking away from that old type of character that I was to become the person that God would have me to be. A servant for the Most High God. Number two, also out of verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And we talked about the idea of spiritual warfare. And this is, I think, living in a physical world, spiritual warfare is difficult to understand. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about uh, standing against the wiles of the devil, standing, uh, taking a stand, uh, uh, being understood of the attacks of the wicked one that is there. 
And then he follows that up with the reasoning, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We often look at our enemy as flesh and blood. Yet Paul says the attack is focused upon not those things, but upon spiritual things. And if that is the case, James exhorts us to resist the devil. We said last time here that it was a mindset. Uh, The attack of the wicked one comes from the heart, uh, to the mind. Uh, It is something that we are to fill ourselves, best resisting him, fill ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. For me to live as Christ, living my life is Christ, and that is the best way to resist him. Fill my heart with Jesus. Give no place for the devil. Resist the devil, and what's the response? He flees. He has no place. He has no avenue to approach me. Number three, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you out of verse 8. And I think this fits very well with my resistance to Satan. If I'm filling my heart with the Lord, as I'm drawing nigh to God, there is no avenue for Satan to come in, But the promise that he provides for us here is that God draws near to me. I draw near to him in his word. I draw near to him in the opportunities I have in prayer, fellowship, communion, one with others uh, in in believers' relationships that we have. And the promise that he's given us is that he will draw nigh to you. And we gave the uh, pictures of who this one is, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The one who orchestrates all things, irrespective of whatever satellite is being set up and and giving preview to all of the things that are taking place in the outer space and all of the black holes and and all of history that they think is floating out there in, in space. He's created it all. And he has a personal interest in us. So we draw near to him and he draws near to us. And then the fourth one, also out of verse 8, And we touched on that in a little bit, but we'll spend some more time this morning. Get clean. (laughs) James says, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I'm reading this and I'm asking, aren't believers washed already? Aren't we washed by the blood of the Lamb? There's a beautiful hymn that goes, I know a fount where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. We recognize that entrance into heaven. That is the the place of the believer's life. That's where it begins. Christian is washed and cleansed. He is justified. He is forgiven. He is adopted. And all of those statements that are made not to what some people would say, well, that's for the favored Christian. All of those relationships special with God. No, no. They are for all believers, even to the mere Christian, as we would say. His status is special, because even as the weakest lamb of God, weakest of the flock of Christ, because though our sins were as scarlet, they have become whiter than snow. That's God's promise for us. However, in truth, every Christian sins. And although we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb and justified in the sight of God, that sin lies out before us on a regular basis. It is a stain that we sometimes see all too often. Conscience tells us of our awful failures, 
And I say conscience, I really meaning the accuser of the brethren. You know, he doesn't sit on your shoulder like all those cartoon characters and he whispers in your ears and he says, you are really a murderer. You are nothing but a thief. You know, it never has happened quite like that to me. And yet we recognize his whisperings. Instead, he comes in a quiet, constant whisper and he comes in my own voice. Those things come along and it's not some foreign, strange language. It is my voice that I hear. You are this and that. They deserve your anger. Forgiveness means that you're letting them get away with what they deserve. You have a right to be mad. After all, they are wrong. And, and even though they're hurting, you're hurting too. And so we justify ourselves in making those choices to sin. And then after a while, I hear the voice again. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You call yourself a child of God and you, you talk like that or you act like that. And it's the same voice. I hear it again and again. And how do I feel? I feel crushed. I feel dejected. I feel hopeless. Because what I thought I should be, I really am not acting like that. So then what is James saying here when he tells us to wash our hands and purify our hearts? James is recognizing the part of man that is defiled by sin. And again, needs to be washed. A divided heart, a double-minded man, a double-minded heart is really what he's speaking to. It needs to be purified again. That's what he's saying. At the end of each day, I go to God and I says, Father, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm, I, it, it's burdened me, but I need to do it again. And the miracle of that which takes place, the wonder of grace, tells me that my sins are forgiven, cleaned off. And every day we need to receive such a cleansing in Jesus' name. And don't stop. Don't presume because I've had a good day that I don't have to go to him and ask for his forgiveness because I'm sure... There have been a thousand toes that have been stepped on. Never doubt that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Never doubt that he is one who does not cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Though you have gone with the same sins a hundred times and will be reminded of them a thousand times, I can come and find confidence. Are you a sinner? Are you a double-minded man? Song goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Wesley understood that. And I read that and I says, How could he say that? But that's my the propensity of my heart to wander, to go off of this way or to go to that way. Then James says, Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double minded. The only Christians that are are sinners that are cleansed by the mercy of Jesus Christ. Those are Christians. The only Christian is the ones who can say they are washed sins, cleansed sins, purified sins, purged sins. We have no other sins. I can't go through life presuming that I'm going to go through the day without sinning. It's the nature of this earth suit. 
It's what I'm done. And not until I leave this and I enter into glory will I recognize that that's gone. It's a part of me. But I have to ask for his forgiveness. Number five, grieve, mourn, and weep. What a text. man was saying, went to church last night. His friend was saying, well, what did the preacher talk about? Three things, be afflicted, mourn, and weep. Anything else? You see, yeah, he says, he talked about turning my laughter to the morning, to mourning, and my joy to heaviness. Are you going back there again? He says, yeah, I am. He sounds like a real cheerful guy, doesn't he? But what he's telling me are things that I need to hear. When Jesus began his public ministry of preaching, talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, he really talked about grieving and mourning and wailing and weeping. As a matter of fact, his messages were often most powerful. In Mark chapter 1, we read, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What was Jesus saying? He says, grieve and mourn and weep. You can't have repentance unless there's that. Unless there's grieving and mourning and repeating it. Repent. (laughs) We live in a postmodern world. We work in it. We have interaction with all kinds of people that have been swallowed up with this postmodern thinking. They don't even recognize its theology. It's a truth where your viewpoint is as valuable as mine. Whatever you think, however conclusions you've come to, that's just as valuable as mine. Taken to extremes, for example, there are those that we might say have done things that were illegal, was adultery or stealing. And yet to the postmodernist, those aren't necessarily wrong to him. He just sees it differently. He doesn't recognize sin as sin. We live among people who reject absolute truth, causing them to reject the Bible, causing them to reject what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You can't say that. You're being insensitive. You you don't recognize how I think, my views. You You don't understand. And so if there aren't those standards, all of a sudden, everything is open. Everything becomes free for any man. So the idea of sin and what it is, well, it's your opinion. And and I'm afraid Christians can easily fall into that. We can justify our sin because everybody else has found themselves in a postmodern attitude that there is no standard. There is no things that are written clearly that we can believe as we want to believe. Brethren, we must never forget that we have all done wrong in the eyes of the creator of the universe. And his wrath is focused upon us. He's measured us, the standards of law, and we found ourselves lost. And only in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 
the Lamb, without blemish and without spot, taken away the sin of the world only by his agonizing death on the cross could save me from hell. We grieve then, at least we ought to, that Jesus bore my sins, my shameful sins, and we ought to mourn that my guilt nailed my Savior, and we ought to weep thinking of what we are and what we've done that has taken him to such an end. My sins, my sins, my Savior. Think of those words. How do they fit together? I don't have a Savior unless I've had sins that I recognize. And once I recognize my sins, I say, oh, what a Savior. You ever notice the gap between, excuse me, between what we sing in our services, what we sing in our services and what we actually think? You ever notice how there sometimes there's a hymn and we sing through it and all of a sudden, uh, is that what I really believe? Is that what's really going on? For example, you ever notice the gap in when I survey the wondrous cross, we sing, I pour contempt on all my pride. We sing that, do we? I pour contempt on all my pride. But my pride still is there. I'm good, Matt. Amazing Grace, we sing, Saved a wretch like me. Do you ever feel like a wretch? There are ever times that all of a sudden the sin that has been so easily part of life, I feel like myself, I'm a wretch. Well, you know, he wrote this because he was a slave trader and all the atrocities that he Are we any better than John Newton? Have you ever felt like a wretch? The hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, we sing, I am all unrighteousness, vile and full of sin, I am. Do you mean those words? Do those words actually, or are they just, well, I just love this hymn and I just sing it. Do I feel myself in such a place? Have I ever experienced the vileness of sin? Beneath the cross of Jesus, we sing the words, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. We praise him for the redeeming love, but what has he redeemed me from? My unworthiness. There's nothing that has brought that together other than Christ. Recognize the distinction. Hey, I hope this is the right water temperature. Thank you. Perfect. Look at the gap. You know, I think when these hymn writers, and this part of a bone of contention I have with contemporary Christian music, Christian music, is that there isn't a focus on their own life. These hymn writers with the hymns that we have in our, in our hymn book, a lot of them I know, and I don't necessarily know their history, but I'd almost tend to think that each one has experienced the actual words that they're putting down, and they recognize those things. Do we, as we sing them, have such? The men and women of the scriptures, do they experience 
had they experienced the conviction of sin that came to bring them to the Savior? Or are they just people that just, oh, this one, this one, this one. The publican in the temple would not look up to heaven. Bent his head over, smote his breast and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw who he was. What a situation. 3,000 converted at the day of Pentecost under Peter's sermon. Scripture says they were cut to the heart. Oh, is that just figurative speech? You know? Oh, yeah, no. I think the Spirit of God had grabbed them and caused them to see they were wicked sinners. And that what Peter spoke of was powerful and true. They cried in anguish, what shall we do? The Apostle Paul tells us that he believes himself to be a wretched man and the chiefest of sinners. Hyperbole? Is he just adding this on to be able to say, you know, uh, people will read my letters and they'll think of me differently? Or did it come from his heart? See, the relationship, what we have, what we present within scriptures and what we sing should bear within our own souls. James is telling this first generation of Christians that a knowledge of God also brings a knowledge of my own depravity. Knowledge of God shows me the gap that exists between me and such a holy God. And it shows what a depraved person I really am. How wicked of a sinner I am. Can a man, for example, who loves his church and caught in a matter of embezzling, can he go ahead and he enters back into the church because he's been caught and not even think anything about it? Doesn't that apply to every action of ours? Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness, James says. David. Oh, man. King David. Think of all of the things that were involved in his life. Some really nice, but some of them were quite wicked. Relationship that he had with Bathsheba. Were there days when David and Bathsheba were sitting around laughing together? Just enjoying life. She's next to the king, beautiful woman. Things are just going great. When they won't recognize the, the, the body of Uriah, her husband is still in the grave, just freshly there. And the child that is going to come from this relationship, as poorly thought out as it was, sinful as it was, is going to be gone. And I'm sure there were times that they were joyful in that relationship and the nation looked on in total shame. David, grieve and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned mourning and your joy to heaviness. What do we ask a Christian before he joins the church? Do you profess repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Part of the body of Christ, do you, do you, have you repented before God? You know, this isn't some Roman Catholic quickie, you know, be done like this and then pay your coins. Uh, Millie and I were going by last night. We got two huge Catholic churches near us and the parking lot was full at, was at 3.45 in the afternoon, you know, 
And she said, well, they're getting it all done, so they got the whole Sunday ahead of them. They can do whatever they need to do, you know. Enter into it because priest is blessed them. They've paid this. They've done this. It doesn't work that way. Martin Luther saw how far the church had gone in his day, how far it went astray from the New Testament teachings, actions of the people who were there in the church. So he nailed his 95 theses, October 31st, 1517, on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. The first theses on that list, and it was for debate, that was the purpose of it, the first theses said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, Matthew 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It was Jesus' will that our hearts would be repentant. Not that all of a sudden we've, we've made it to a certain stage in life, but I don't have to anymore. I've been a believer for you know, years. You know. It doesn't matter. The Christian is always repenting, as he must always be trusting. Thankful for the grace that has allowed us to bring within this relationship. And the same issue remains with us today. And to modernize worship and to draw crowds in by erasing repentance, as I know there are some TV evangelists and others that have done that, in the matter of Christian faith means to leave Christianity behind. It's not real. There is no Christianity without repentance. Number six, humble yourselves before the Lord. Um, This has been kind of repeated. This was caught up earlier in the chapter, but it becomes a monumental summary of that which is necessary. Christ who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The eternal majesty humbled himself for you. Can I not humble myself? Humility is an interesting attitude of heart. Do you ever try to work, some, work with somebody who has their own agenda? <laughs> the boss said, I'm sending you in somebody today to work with you. You know, show them the ropes and help them along in this project. Well, this guy looks at you and he says, I don't need you to tell me what to do. As a matter of fact, I think I know better than you. As a matter of fact, you know, let's, you know, and, and, and this conflict goes on and all of a sudden by the end of the day you say, Sorry, buddy, you're, you're not coming back and working with me. You know That own agenda kind of uh, doesn't fit very well. In the end, you stop using him. His self-will has made him useless. Self-will has made him useless. As we mentioned the last time, servants must serve. We are God's servants, and every servant has to be humbled in front of him and in front of all. Every day that we arise, we ask the Lord, as Paul did on his road to Damascus, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? We talk about agendas. I think we all have our own agendas. 
my phone's not here, the phone's in the bag, but I've got my list, you know, my Apple calendar, and I've got the little things in, the little reminders, they pop up and they tell me what to do. And if I don't do it, are there others calling me or other things reminding me? My companion for life reminds me, you know, have you done this? Did we do this? You know, we all have agendas. But as a servant of the Most High God, we must be the ones who listen to him. Frequently, the Lord answers will result in our becoming like the minister who came to see me with feelings of inadequacy. And we talked about it. He had left seminary and was at his first church, and there were lots of battles that were going on with fatigue, and he wanted to serve the Lord, but he just wasn't sure how things were going how he might grow in his faith and grace. But it's a strange way the Lord answers. He says, I will break your schemes of earthly joy and and, and that you will find joy in me. The deeper sense is that in the weaknesses that we have, God breaks us and he brings us to a place where we find I can only trust in him. Ever experienced that? How long sometimes it takes before That failure and that failure and that failure brings me to the point to be able to say, not my will, Lord, but yours. I'll do it that way. Pastor Jeff Thomas writes, when I was 20 years of age, I went to a planning meeting of an evangelistic crusade. All the details of the meetings were discussed. And when it was over, I walked to the bus stop with an elderly Christian gentleman with a long coat and hat. We talked about the meeting and about evangelism. He quoted to me Ecclesiastes 10.10. If the iron be blunt, and he did not wet the edge, then must be put forth more strength. And with the power the authorized version has for tucking itself into my memory cell, he says, I will never have forgotten that verse spoken to me by that man at the bus stop. The old gentleman said, It is not a waste of time for the reaper to pause and sharpen the sigh. So too with us. We ought to be praying, not God use me, but God make me usable. Our plans. What can I do as an individual, as a family, as a church? You know, God, make me usable. It's not great gifts that God gives us as much as the likeness of Jesus Christ. When the day is finished, when all of the things are done, it's going to have to be Christ that's going to be lifted up, the testimony. And you'll see some, uh, some men of God who have gone on, you know, past couple of years, you mentioned R.C. Sproul and others, you know, their testimony was not about what they did, but about Christ that was brought before him and lifted up to be done that way. The Lord Jesus humbled himself and the Christian pours contempt on all his pride and becomes increasingly willing to be what God wants him to be, to do what God wants him to do for as long as God wants him to do it. That becomes the key. And for such men and women who humble themselves at the promise, God will lift you up. That's great. And I think there are times we've experienced that. 
I know what you're saying, Pastor. I, I felt that. But then we get down the road a little bit and all of a sudden we've taken a, a rabbit trail or something has been said or something's been done and all of a sudden I find myself back on the old nature, that old way. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it again. That's where I say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. From sinking sand, he lifted me. With tender hands, he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light, oh, praise his name, he lifted me. Yes, in our salvation, in that moment where all of a sudden all of my senses recognize that I'm a sinner on his way to hell and Christ's offering of himself brought me to the place I surrender all. I'm yours now, Lord. But what about the rest of the times? Not that he's left me, but what about the rest of the times that I find myself going back to the old ways of being, I think I know how to do this better. I think I can accomplish this by doing this or by not doing this. You know, I, I think this would be easier for this way. <laughs> Doesn't happen, does it? And will he not keep lifting me up throughout our lives? Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. Six keys in conquering the things that face us around in the world in which we live. My submission to God becomes key. It becomes key at the very beginning. It becomes key at the end. My trust in him that he will do it. My relationship to the wickedness of this world, my trust in God allows me to be able to say, I fill my soul with him and I have no place for the devil. I find my satisfaction in him. And there's no approach of Satan whatsoever. Drawing near to God, drawing closer to him, spending my time with him, allowing his word to permeate my soul. And then I find that he is there. Not that he's ever left. But sometimes I'm running ahead and sometimes I'm lagging behind. Don't worry, I'll catch up. You know, but it doesn't happen quite like that. And then in recognizing the sin that we find ourselves in, the weeping and the mourning and the grieving, never believe that sin becomes something not so bad. We, we talk about it a lot, the world in which we live, and we say, look what's happening to our societies. Look what's happening over here and over here. You know, Train wreck in India. I wonder how many of those, almost 300 people have died, and no doubt more will die, will end up in heaven. I don't know. There's a great Christian work going on in India, you know. The war in Russia and in and, and Ukraine, the shells made, you know, another apartment bombs, and, and, and how many of those lives, you know. Uh, just, it's just a constant, you know. We recognize that sin is all a part of that. No hope. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the word that uh, offers us truth and at times is not very palatable but necessary that we might not only bring ourselves to recognize that it speaks to me personally, but that it offers me sometimes a cruel reality check on who I am and what I've been doing but grace gives me such hope. Thank you for the qualities that the word tells us of, of you, Father. That you are merciful. That you do not give us what we deserve. That you're gracious. That you give us what we don't deserve. That you're long-suffering. 
that you're tender, that you're kind, that you're loving. And Lord, help us to see ourselves as people who can only be recipients of such through Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. There's no righteousness in us. It is only in Christ. May, Father, the seeds of this letter of James and all of Scripture uh, be sown and be found within our own souls with soil that is of a good soil, a soil that will bring forth an abundant of harvest, a 60-fold, a 80-fold, a 100-fold to your honor and glory. But it will only be done, Father, by you. And because of that, we praise you for what you will do in Christ's name. Amen.